Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Talking Snooker with Phil Haig and Nick Metcalf. Once again, talking about the game we all love. Top of the Monday morning to you, Phil. How are you? Morning, yeah. Pleasure to be here as always. Very good, yep. Watched a bit of snooker over the over the weekend from Barnsley, a few of those qualifiers. Um, but yeah, hoping for some uh, more lively action to come in, uh, in the coming weeks. Definitely. We have got more qualifying action and then... Northern Ireland gets ever closer. Well, I saw my first live top flight football match of the of the season yesterday, Sunday here in the UK, West Ham against Manchester United. Couldn't have hoped for a more dramatic ending to that. But let's get back to the bays now, Bill. That's what we do best, isn't it? And the, more, and the more discerning among our listeners will have noticed that I called it a very special episode at the top there. Well, the reason I called it that it's because of who we have joining us today. This really is quite a, a lovely coup for us. This man is quite simply one of Snooker's best-loved personalities. A brilliant player in his heyday, whose finest hour was winning the UK Championship in 1979. He was a permanent fixture on the table in the sports glory years. When he wasn't playing, he was often doing impressions of his rivals, and of course, he's been a permanent fixture in the commentary box for decades. Add to that, he was a star of Saturday night television throughout the 90s and beyond, becoming a national celebrity in the process. We are very happy to say that the one, the only, John Virgo joins us on Talking Snooker. John, it's great to see you. How are you? I'm very well, Nick. I'm very well. Good to be with you. Oh, it's smashing. And... And you're in Spain these days, aren't you? How's life for you over there? Uh, well, the timing of the move wasn't great with the pandemic and everything. But uh, no, uh, we moved here for a bit of warm weather. So that's uh, basically what we get. So that's good. Yeah, that can't let you down over there. Um, what was the snooker scene like over in Spain? 
to be honest with you, Phil, I don't know if there is one. There was a bit of a barbecue going on on uh, Thursday when Jimmy came over and Ken Doherty, so and Joe Swale was there. So uh, yeah, but where this is, I think there is a snooker club nearby, but uh, I haven't uh, ventured in it because obviously we've all had the same problems all over, haven't we? Lockdown and everything else. But uh, I think snooker basically is. Uh, for countries where the weather's not great, isn't it? You know, it's an indoor game, so uh, maybe it's not that popular in uh, Spain. Or maybe it will be if I get in and around uh, some of these uh, clubs. That'd be lovely. I know Jason Ferguson's spoken about wanting to get a, a ranking event over there, so that'd be nice. Oh, that'd be good. That'd be handy, yeah. Just <laughs> drive down the road, yeah. But no, it's <laughs> lovely here. And uh, but as I say, just the timing of the move was bad, you know. Yeah, of course. Well, Phil, we did chat before, didn't we, about uh, John coming on today. And one thing we were absolutely adamant about straight away was that we want to focus a bit on your playing days, which we think gets forgotten too often. Because you were, you're first and foremost, you were a very fine snooker player. And John, how much do you think back now to those actual playing days? Uh, well, it was a different uh, era then. Uh, you know, you look at players now turning professional, 16, 17. I mean, I didn't turn professional until I was 30. Uh, it was a bit of a closed shot, but I understood that because uh, there wasn't that much money to go around. And uh, it was very hard. I mean, Ray Reid and John Spencer had a job breaking into it. You know, I mean, the main players at the time were John Pullman, Fred Davis, Rex Williams. And they were trying to protect their interests, which I understood. So uh, when I turned professional, when I was 30, it was really, uh, you know, not, not the end of my uh, uh, being at the top of the, my game, but I didn't have that many years, if you know what I mean. I mm. mean, uh, so when I won the uh, UK, I was uh, 33. Uh, and then I had another couple of years, but then I sort of uh, started to go a little bit downhill and for a snooker playing going downhill he's missing blacks off the spot that you would never normally miss that's the uh, that's the worst thing in the world for any snooker player missing easy balls and uh, that's what happens you I don't know if it's concentration what have you but that's what starts to happen mm. but no I had, a, I, I had a great time uh, I had a great time as an amateur of course my old mate who died uh, just over a year ago, Willie Thorne, we had a lot of uh, battles together over the years. And uh, I always remember the time, uh, 1972, just after Alex Higgins had uh, won the World Championship for the first time, he came into the snooker club I used to practice in. And I played him all day, all day. We had 64 frames playing Alex Higgins. Wow. And he, ruined, and he ruined my game for about 18 months. I thought, that is the way to play snooker. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I had 18 months of trying to play like Alex Higgins. So that set me back a bit. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, no, there were good days. And I, and I feel now that, looking back, uh, I always believe in those early days, you know, you get the likes of Ray Reed and Spencer, whatever. we were trying to sell the game to the public. The public were very important that we got them watching on the TV. And uh, if you see any old footage from the Crucible, you always see Ray Rin having a little joke with the uh, the audience and this and the other. And as I say, it was just a different sort of atmosphere that we were trying to create. We wanted people to watch the game so ultimately we could earn a living. Mm. 
I mean, could you believe it, John, when the game kind of transformed in front of your eyes? It started with Pop Black, didn't it, uh, to mm. some extent? And then when the BBC came on board with uh, extensive live coverage, other channels too, ITV covered snooker a lot in those days as well. Um, yeah. could, could you believe it that suddenly, you know, what was a popular game, but, but, but nowhere near the size that it became, it must have been so exciting. Oh, it was unbelievable. I mean, from one minute walking down the road up, Stopping at a petrol station, fill your car up with petrol. Nobody knew knew you. Then all of a sudden, everybody knew you. I always thought there was three ingredients that made the game. Colour television, the BBC, obviously, and Alex Higgins. Alex Higgins was that little bit of magic that the game needed. It, it needed someone, you know, like golf, you could say, Sevi Ballesteros, you know, just those kind of players that get people on the edge of the seats and and, and Alex did that and uh, yeah he ruffled a few feathers at the time but uh, I, I thought it was a very important ingredient to the game but no the way the game just took off was just beyond anyone's beliefs to be honest with you. We, me and Nick sort of agree that your, your playing days are sort of underplayed a bit um, because of your career on TV afterwards maybe but um, mm. you were legitimately one of the best players in the world sort of 79, 80 but perhaps maybe you were even better before you turned pro. I've heard that from a few players of that sort of era. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I say, we were turning pro late. You know, we weren't turning pro. Like, I remember when Stephen Hendry applied to turn professional. I was on the board of the association at the time. And he said, oh, he's too young. He was only 17. Hmm. I said, well, he's won the Scottish amateur. He can't do anything else. Yeah, but our rules say you've got to be 18 at the time. They were always looking for excuses to exclude people. Yeah. I don't know why. But anyway, Stephen, as we all know, the rest is history. He turned pro and what a great success he made of it. If I look back and had one regret, that was the other thing. After getting to the, uh, the semi-final of the, of the World Championship in 79, we had a board meeting and I finished up getting voted onto the board. And getting involved in the politics of the game when you've still got a playing career to look after uh, was a bad move. And, uh, yeah, it, 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 it's something, in, as I say, in retrospect, I, I wouldn't have done and shouldn't have done. But, you know, being a bit of a socialist, <laughs> you know, I, I like to think that I could be uh, helpful to people. But it doesn't always work out that way because uh, you can't please everybody all the time. You know, it's as simple as that. Was that mainly because it was too much of a distraction from the playing or just too many yeah, voices? It was. I mean, I remember one distinct incident. Uh, there's a few, but uh, one where I was playing uh, a two-table situation at uh, the assembly rooms in Derby and Jimmy had taken ill uh, and he couldn't play on the other table. I'm getting ready to play on my table against Martin Clark, who's now tournament director of the circuit. And I've got people running up. Uh, the people want to know, uh, do they get their money back because Jimmy's not uh, <laughs> playing? Uh, do we? And they're asking me for the decision. I'm getting ready to play a match, you know. <laughs> and then my classic uh, of all, which really brought it home, I think it was uh, 80, uh, it would have been 97. I think it was in 97. No, 77, 87. Uh, I'm playing Doug Mountjoy in the quarterfinal of the UK Championship. Uh, fully enough, he went on to win it. He beat Stephen Hendry in the mm. final. Mm. Uh, but he's beat me 9-8. And all the way from the, the arena 
through the practice room, through the bar, to where you put your cues away in this uh, office, he's going, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and eventually I couldn't stand it anymore. So when we got in the office, I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck. I said, what's going on? And he went, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> he's brought me, to, brought me back to earth. So it was all those things going on, and it definitely distracted me from my playing. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, <laughs> with, with some people we'd have on here, John, you sometimes think, oh, you know, that's a bit of a cliche to talk about that, you know. But with you, you, you have to do the big hits. And for you, the 1979 UK final is obviously, it's part of snooker folklore, really. But you, yeah, course, yeah, yeah. you of course, yeah. for the final day, um, yeah. But for reasons you, that, that were kind of not your fault, you didn't realise the time had changed, did it, for the final day? And I know you told this story so many times, but you were playing Terry Griffiths and you called it, interestingly, the best and worst day of your life, which is a great turn of phrase, but I think it sums up yeah. the emotions you were feeling that day. Absolutely. Well, uh, I got beat in the semi-final earlier that year by Dennis in the semi, in, in the semi of the world. Uh, he'd lost to Terry in the final, so I'm now, if you like, a chance for revenge, if you like. So I beat Dennis in the uh, the semi-final. I'm now playing Terry in the final, and it was a three-session event, uh, and it finished Saturday afternoon on Grandstand. But I didn't realise he brought the time on a little bit earlier. So I was leading 11-7, first of 14 it was, best of 27 then. And uh, so when I've got there... Uh, I get a phone call anyway, I'm in this hotel. Uh, where are you? And I went, well, it's two o'clock. No, it's one o'clock. Anyway, I got there 20 minutes late. First person ever to get deducted frames at the time. So now instead of being 11-7, it's 11-9. Terry wins the first two frames, it's 11-0. So now we go to an interval. Fair play to Terry, and we've always been pally, you know, most of us. And he said, look, do you want to split the money? But it wasn't about the money. I, I needed to win something to tell people that I was a good player, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, somehow I managed to beat 14-13, which was, uh, was great. But all the anguish I'd gone through in the hours previous just put a real damper on the day for me, you know. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that was it. Best and worst day of my life, really. I mean, That's a remarkable resolve there, though, because in that situation... You talk about players being gone. I can imagine a lot of players would have been gone at that point. Oh, I was gone, Phil. I was absolutely <laughs> gone. But, but the interval, and then I, I, I think the, the, the thought of, how's this happened to me? You know, because we all have this sort of feeling that bad things happen, you know, or unlucky things happen. And then I just got a little bit angry, I suppose, and, mm. and that sort of shed away a bit of the... Uh, the tension and the stress I was feeling. And, uh, yeah, I managed to win 14-13, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was a great day, but, as I say, spoiled by the fact that instead of being able to enjoy it, it was all head-on, you know, and it, it wasn't a great, great feeling. But, uh, yeah, it's in the record book, so, yeah. <laughs> Forget what happened on the day, just look at the, uh, the record books. Yeah. That's good. Well, I mean, I, I know you talk about Terry making a nice offer there, but... The way I've read it over the years and heard you say it, that kind of inspired you a bit. You were like, wait a sec, Terry, you haven't won this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, well that was the other thing. Yeah, fair comment. <laughs> I mean, when he said it, I thought, well, hang on, you've not won yet. 
<laughs> you know, so uh, that, yeah, that, that was another little thing that, that 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 came about after that. And then straight after that, I went to India uh, to Bombay. Uh, we played the Bombay International, and I and I won that. I, I was really on the top of my game then, you know. Mm. Uh, Steve, I mean, he was already a young lad. I beat him in the UK that year, Steve, Steve Davis. I beat him, and, and then I beat uh, Dennis Taylor again, and I beat Cliff Thorburn in the final. So I was really uh, playing well, but as I say, I got involved in this politics. I'm not making excuses, and, and it was something I felt at the time I needed to do. But, you know, we're all wise after the event, aren't we? Mm. And afterwards, I thought, no, you should have stayed out of that. But there you go, that's life. I mean, something that's just come into my mind is the great uh, Australian cricket commentator, Richie Benno, when he was surrounded by, I think, uh, some youngsters, uh, maybe early teens, late in his life, they said, Richie, did you ever play cricket? And of course, he was absolutely brilliant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. what I'm getting at is, do, do, do sometimes people not talk about your playing career enough and you think, wait a second, I was a fine player. Yeah, well, I don't, uh, I, I don't take it that personal, but yeah, it is a fact. I, listen, you know, when you come out with a view on when you're doing your commentary, you'll get somebody saying, "Oh, you said this. What do you know about the game?" You know, because they forget. And uh, <clears throat> yeah. excuse me, I suppose most people, uh, if they're shouting across now, I mean, they'll go, "Where's the cue ball going?" Or say good night, <laughs> JV, and things like that. You know. Yeah, they don't say, oh, I back you when you won that tournament. You don't get any of that, you know. No, no. But listen, snooker has given me a life, which I was referring back to what you said earlier. When I went in the snooker club as a kid, and uh, I I never thought it'd be a game that would take me all around the world, you know. And uh, I mean, I love the game and it's given me everything. So uh, just whatever... Part of it, people remember, is good enough for me. Mm. Uh, obviously, you, you mentioned the semi-final run at the Crucible, but um, your first appearance there happened to be the first year at the Crucible at the World oh, Championships. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was there like a feeling that this was going to be the new home? Was it was it obvious it was going to be a special venue for the World Championships? Uh, well, I, I always remember Patsy Fagan and I. Uh, we went into the arena one morning to watch a game. I think it was Eddie Charlton playing uh, Fred Davis. And if there were ten, if there was ten people there, that would have been it, you know. Right. So you think, well, is it going to be that popular? Uh, but I think the BBC were a very important ingredient in this, you know, the coverage. And even now, I mean, terrestrial television is always going to get the great viewing figures. And it was the BBC really who uh, who made it. And then the Crucible. Uh, became a great venue, you know, mm. because I think snooker needs to be playing, played in that theatre atmosphere. You know, prior to that, you were playing at venues with erected tier seating, rattling noise, but this was a nice theatre, soft seats, no rattling of, uh, you know, made-up seating, and uh, just created a great atmosphere. And as everybody now, I'm sure, knows, only holds about 950 people. But that is perfect for snooker, you know. You don't want to be too far away from the table and everybody gets involved and has a good view. And it's, yeah, the, the atmosphere is magic. Magic. For anyone who's never been, put it on your bucket list. Yeah, we, we were going to bring this up at some point. This seems like a good time to do it. But have you seen Judd Trump's comments recently about 
it might be time to move on from the Crucible or at some point in the future to go to a bigger venue. Um, I don't know if you see them or what you thought about those. Well, I, I mean, obviously I heard a few uh, comments uh, last year from Judd about want to make a younger person's game and this, that and the other. Uh, I think the most important with any sport, you need a bit of history. And if the people of the, that era, and now it's Judd's era, if they do what they can to keep the game popular, then that will encourage people to come in. And obviously they're going to be younger people. But I think just trying to change everything and make it a quick fix. I mean, I'm not a great lover of these best of fives and this, that and the other. But I understand it makes for an exciting tournament. But mm -hmm. if I was a snooker player playing best of fives, you know, when I'm at the peak of my powers, I mean, it's a lottery, you know. Now, that shouldn't be the way the game goes, you know. And it's all right making way for young people. And I'm all in favour of that. But keep the history of the game, you know, and playing at the Crucible, winning the World Championship at the Crucible is an iconic feat in the, in the game of snooker. Absolutely. So, 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 you, so you'd, you'd very much say it, it, the tournament you'd like to see at the Crucible still for years to come? Why not? Why not? I mean, I, I thought what Barry Hearn did with the, uh, the Masters, oh. uh, Ali Pali, uh, well, the last time we went there, hmm. uh, was fantastic. Fantastic. And, and that defined the Masters as a great tournament, you know, with all the hospitality things they had and all that. But for an actual snooker fan to go into the crucible and be hit by that wall of silence and the fact that you're frightened to breathe, <laughs> that creates an atmosphere all of its own. And if you lost that, I think you'd be losing something in the game. Mm -hmm. I wondered what um, you guys, because Judd had made comments about sort of the commentators, specifically on the BBC, and sort of mm. talk about the past a bit. Um, and you guys have been doing that for a while. And I wondered how those went down with sort of you guys have been on the BBC for quite a lot of time now. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, nothing lasts forever, Phil, does it? You know, and, and that day's going to come probably sooner rather than later. But I still think we've got something to offer. I don't think mm. the shots have changed. I don't think the mentality. And when somebody misses an easy shot, I think you can, you can put your finger on why they did it. And if someone's in a spot of bother, I mean, Dennis is the best line drawer in the business, isn't he? If someone's in a snooker, so I don't know if they, being younger, you draw the line, might, might put a little emoji on the bottom of it or something. I don't know. So how are you going to better that? But no, I understand. But uh, I think over the years, we've had the experience to talk when we need to talk, be quiet when we, we need to let the pictures tell the story, you know. So, uh, yeah, but uh, it will change. And as I say, probably sooner rather than later. But, uh, yeah, I won't have any complaints because I've enjoyed it. But, uh, listen, I was the same. I always remember when I first uh, turned professional, you know, I was a bit angry, you know, at the establishment for not having been let me turn professional sooner than I did and the closed shop, you know. Uh, and I had one or two run-ins over the years with Rex Williams and John Spencer and even Ray Reardon, you know. Uh, but that's just the way you are, trying to make a name or trying to have an input into the game and I think that's what Judd's done and uh, he did some work for the BBC as did Jack Jack Lazowski 
this year and they were very good. But what I did get from them, and well, unless they were just telling me a lie, I mean, Judd and Jack said it was great working with you, John. It was an honor. So, you know, I can only take that and, 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 and take the credence from what they said to me when they worked with me, you know. Well, definitely, John. And, 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 you know, I think I speak for the pretty much all snooker fans when I say you are truly a great voice of the game. How, how did commentary start for you? You were asked, weren't you? Yeah, well, I, when I say I shouldn't have gone on the board, right, <laughs> that's the other side that does. Because I was on the board, I honestly believe that that's why I was asked. You know, I was, I was a board member now. I was part of the establishment. And I always remember Nick Hunter, who was the, uh, the executive producer at the time, and they put me on a three-day trial. So anyway, after the third day, he said, uh, how are you enjoying it? I said, oh, very much, you know. He said, well, we're enjoying what you're doing. He said, the only thing to remember, we've already got one Ted Lowe. <laughs> Basically, what I was doing, I was doing an impression of Ted Lowe. <laughs> it was just in my psyche to do that with people. So I had to just raise it up and up to, you know. And where's the cue ball going? Ted used to say it, but he'd go, <laughs> where's the cue ball going? You know, and I just raised it up and up to, that was all. Yeah, I mean, nothing's uh, new, really, is it? It's just a, a slant on something that had gone before. But, no, I loved uh, listening to Ted Lowe. And, and uh, not that I think that Ted knew that much about snooker, but he set the scene, you know, and uh, you need them in sport. You know, I've always thought of Ted was like Peter Alice, uh, Henry Longhurst, you know, those, and John Arlott, you know. Mm. And, uh, yeah, so... Ted added a sort of his own stamp on how to uh, commentate on a snooker match. And uh, I followed those type of uh, ideals. I'd say, you're not really taught that kind of thing, are you? I mean, you, you no. can't, you're learning on the job, aren't you? And I guess you're listening to yeah. what others are doing, like Ted, maybe Clive Everton, some of those other great, you know, Clive, Clive, yeah, yeah. Clive, great. I used to have a great working relation with, with Clive. Uh, and we knew our positions, you know, because in those days, they were commentators and we were summarisers. So you knew exactly, so you weren't talking over each other. And, uh, yeah, working with those people, and I'll go back to Judd and Jack, if you work with those people, you're going to learn. You know, if you're working with somebody who's of the same ilk, then you're not going to get a lot of, uh, you know, education out of that. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how, I mean, going back from your early playing days right the way to sort of you're still commentating now, they mm -hmm. talk about the sort of the standard of the game, how it's improved. Um, do, do you agree that it's improved com uh, massively? And do you think if players sort of from your era or the 80s um, were put into this standard now, they would just adapt and become players of this standard currently? If you see what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, let me make one thing clear. Ronnie O'Sullivan is the greatest player I've ever seen. I, I find it absolutely amazing. And the fact that he can do it with either hand just, just adds to the mystery of uh, how a man can play the game this well. Uh, I think what happens, I, I mean, I always remember when I was a kid, someone trying to break the four-minute mile, you know, and then nobody could do it. And then eventually when it was done, it kept being done. Steve Davis, I think, would compete in any era. 
you know, with his game. He'd have, you know, he'd have found a way to get results because he was a great player. Stephen Hendry changed the game slightly with a more attacking pot in the blues, smashing into the pink. Uh, I always remember once when uh, Stephen came in the commentary box just before he started commentating and was watching, uh, I can't remember the player was, but he smashed into the balls, you know, and they went everywhere. And Stephen says, like nine ball pool, this. <laughs> I said, well, you started it. You know, he almost forgot. But that is the way the game has changed. So when I'm talking about the great players in my era, you know, you think of your Steve Davis, you think of your Alex Higgins, you think of your Jimmy. Well, Jimmy's still playing, but but let's go back to when he was in his prime. Mm. They would have adapted to to this type of mentality. But Ray Rin was a, if you want for you want of a better term, a nick and run. You know, get what's there and play safe. Now they work on the principle. It might be the only chance you get, so they go for it. So it's more attacking. Uh, yeah. So when you look at the the facts and figures and 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 all these uh, things, that Higgins wouldn't have made anywhere near as many centre breaks as the modern day player. But it was a different game. Mm. It was a different game completely. Uh, but I think in any sport, if you have the great ability to play at a very highest level, you'd compete in any era that you were in. But no, the players today, and as I say, Ronnie's the best I've, I've, I've ever seen. It's just incredible. But uh, no, the players of my day would have competed today. No doubt about it. No doubt. Yeah, I think I think you mentioned century breaks there. That's a good sort of barometer because on yours, you've you've got thirty nine century breaks in your career, which they sort of make in a season now. But that yeah, was just the start yeah. of the game. It didn't mean you weren't as good a player. Well, I remember. I mean, someone like Alex Higgins. I mean, when he got to seventy and the frame was over, he'd be playing all these exhibition shots. And as yeah. I say, in the early days, okay. we were trying to sell the game to people, mm. and we were trying to get people to come back. So you made it exciting. And I always remember. People saying to me about Judd with these big flash finishes he does on the frame. Jimmy White was doing that 20 years before. Yeah. You know, it's always been part and parcel of the game. So uh, I don't think century breaks tells a story. I mean, it was just a case of getting a getting a result and uh, entertaining the crowd, which was very important, particularly in those early days. Yeah. And, and you know, everyone, of course, loves, you know, Where's the cue ball going as a as a as a sort of moniker of yours now? But there are yeah. others as well. I, I've always loved the, the things that happen on a twelve for six snooker table. And I find mm. when I'm playing with a pal, we often say that the things that happen on a twelve for six. <laughs> snooker ball, or, but they know, do though, don't they? they oh, they do. <laughs> it, it's incredible the things that happen, which is why it's a perfect phrase. And someone else that, that I know in in the game mentioned inch perfect, which is one you use. Or he yeah. couldn't, he, yeah, couldn't yeah, have yeah, play, yeah. he couldn't have placed that better with his hand. I mean. Yeah. We love them all because you know. You, but yeah. I, I don't think, although you'll tell me that any of them like. Right, I'm going to create a catchphrase. I think it probably developed slowly, didn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I can't believe where these things come from. I mean, it, it, we might talk about it a bit later. But I was doing big break, and then all of a sudden, I got people shouting, "Say good night, JV, and <laughs> put as many balls as you can." And yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean. I suppose if you say them uh, that many times, people are going to pick up on them, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it just uh, goes with the territory. I, I, I'm not trying to invent a catchphrase. I mean, people hit me back like this, where's the cue ball going? I, I think, 
Oh yeah, at, for, at the beginning, now I know what they mean, but yeah, I didn't realise I said it that many times. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the public missed you greatly, the snooker public and the wider sporting public when you couldn't do the World Championship when the pandemic first struck. And when you came mm. back to the BBC, I think it was for the Masters, you mm. basically had a lovely reception. And I think, did you feel the appreciation you had from snooker fans? I know Jason Mohammed gave you a lovely build-up, as I remember, on the BBC. Mm. But, and, mm. and, and you sort of appeared on screen. And there was such a lovely moment. It's like, great, John Virgo's back. That, that's what we all yeah. wanted to see. Could you yeah. feel that? Could you feel that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the thing is, you, you, you know, in life you do things and... Uh, people maybe appreciate what you've done. Uh, but if nobody says it, you don't really know, do you? <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, that was a nice moment. That was a nice moment. And I remember it distinctly because that was probably the best day they've ever had at the Crucible when Karen Wilson beat... Uh, oh, McGill. <laughs> Anthony. Yeah. And then Ronnie won those last three, two frames against Mark Selby. That was the greatest day of snooker I've ever seen, you, you know, and, and that's live sport, isn't it? You know, at its absolute best. So, yeah, I remember that. I remember that, yeah. That, I mean, that day was incredible. And it's amazing to think everything you've seen in the game, to still think something so recent, that, that you're saying that's the best you've ever seen. Unbelievable. I mean, that frame with Kyron and Anthony was yeah. just, yeah. you know, when he... And, and then... When Anthony can't win anymore, and Kyron went in off in the middle, yeah. wow, I jumped out of my seat. I couldn't <laughs> believe that anyone could make a mistake like that, you know. <laughs> and then those last two frames of Ronnie was just shows you why I say he's the best player I've ever seen. He, so shell shot was Mark Selby. He, he said he was being rude to him. <laughs> yeah. Because he couldn't believe what had happened, and neither could I. So to get that back-to-back -back was just fantastic, you know. Yeah, and that's why think, snooker's a great game, you know. Yeah. You mentioned, and Nick mentioned, the appreciation you have from more snooker fans and the public. And, of course, you mentioned Big Break then. I think a lot of it sort of comes down to that. I remember that so fondly from my childhood growing up in the 90s. Um, yeah. How much did that change your life, and did you expect it to be such a, a massive success? No, not really, no. I mean, it's like everything that, that's happened in my life. You know, I got a phone call. Uh, would I be interested in doing this TV quiz show? Uh, the pilot was done by Mike Reed of EastEnders fame mm. and Len Ganley, funnily enough, uh, the snooker referee. Anyway, I, 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 I didn't know Jim Davidson. And uh, so I went along there. We, the commission was to do eight uh, programmes. Uh, and I always remember... Uh, it was at the World Championship, obviously, at the time. And they put it on a Tuesday night in the place of the Question of Sports slot, which had finished mm. for that series. And we got more viewers than Question of Sport, the first ever show. And uh, But there was some girl who was a film uh, TV critic in the Sheffield Star. Well, she absolutely had a go at the programme. Accused <laughs> me of being the... Uh, Something like, uh, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened on TV and this. And they are. It was terrible. It was terrible, honestly. It really was. The poor man's, uh, who's that fellow Moore used to do Sky at Night? You know, I was him. Patrick Moore. <laughs> the poor man's Patrick Moore. And I always remember 
it was the next day, uh, Jack Carner, who was a cold commentator, said, oh, you've got a write-up in the Sheffield Star. And then the guy who pulled up his Mike Adley, who used to do Questions for he said, don't read it, John, it's not good. And he was telling me to read it. So anyway, that was it. And uh, two weeks later, they now commissioned us to do another 18, another 18 shows. So immediately it was, it, it was a, a big hit, you know, as far as the BBC was concerned. And then they moved us to a Saturday night. Uh, and I remember Noel Edmund saying to me, uh, he said, this is the best lineup we've ever had. Because the viewing figures were going out, out, out off the roof. They already had Dad's Army, <laughs> Big Break, followed by Noel's House Party. Uh, and we were getting nearly 14 million viewers on a Saturday night. And Noel's House Party was getting 17, 18. And that's why Noel said, he said, it's Big Break that's bringing in the audience and they're staying with us, you know. And we ran for 10 years, 10 years. It was just uh, incredible, yeah. incredible. And I think the one thing that I found out of that, uh, I didn't really know Jim Davidson. He's this crafty sort of cockney comedian, isn't he? I'm the door northerner. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a chemistry there that worked. Now, where it came from, I don't know. But there was a chemistry there that worked. And as I say, we ran on 10 years and did nearly 200 shows. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I did pantomime with Jim after that for about eight years. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so that was the end of my snooker playing career, just having that on the end. Because I was missing the vital balls, as I said earlier. And then if you're doing uh, uh, pantomime, you're going to rehearsals, and then it runs through into January. So and that's when they started having qualifiers for the world. And now... I'd about to get to the semi-final of the world to earn as much money as I was doing on the pantomime. So <laughs> pounds, shillings, and pence, it wasn't, uh, you know. And there was a lot of stress where the pantomime was just a, a bundle of fun. It was yeah, great. <laughs> yeah, I've been lucky. I've been lucky. And it's all down in the game of snooker. So, yeah, you can't what? say anything bad about snooker to me. Yeah. Well, we don't say many bad things about snooker on here. Don't worry about that, John. But we... We've all got a John Virgo childhood memory, and mine is those impressions, those and very, very good impressions you used to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ray yeah. Reardon, John Spencer Higgins, when, when and the BBC used to put them on in prime time. Now, I wonder do, yeah. how, how important were they, do you think, in oh. sowing the seeds of that later entertainment uh, career for you? Absolutely, absolutely, Nick. I think that was the main reason. I always remember when I first did the impersonation. Uh, David Vine, who used to be the frontman for the BBC, said, you've just got 25 grand worth of free publicity there. <laughs> well, I think it was a lot more than that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, in, in later years, uh, could a few people at the BBC did say that. Uh, they saw that I might have a, a sense of humour, a sort of light entertainment outlook that would have been perfectly suited to, uh, to the TV show. And... Uh, and Jim was a, had seen him because he said, oh, I love those impersonations you did have written and all that, you know. So, uh, yeah, you do things in life and you think they're just for a short period and you never know what it's going to mean later on in your life. And I certainly think that was a very important uh, part of me getting big break. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and 
I know you, I know you said this before um, that that you I think you played it very well because I, I don't know if someone said it to you or you just knew it instinctively. Jim Davidson obviously is the biggest star of the show. He's the main oh, presenter. Yeah. So, but you didn't detract away from that. You kind of played it straight a lot. And I think that helped to develop that great sort of partnership. You, you hit the nail on the head. My manager at the time, a guy called Troy Dancer, who managed a few uh, uh, snooker players, Peter Ebden and the like, you know, he said to me, he said, whatever you do, don't compete with the star. So that's exactly what I picked up. There's no good me trying to compete with Jim Davison, who is a very funny man, by the way. So I just stood there. And it's a funny thing is that I was just stood there. And then within four shows, he had an ISO camera on me, just picking up a raised eyebrow or a pull <laughs> in my face or something like that. The only thing is, it works on television now, having an ISO camera on you, you know, one particular camera all the time, pick up any reaction. But it didn't work for Panto. You've got to be a bit more outgoing. And I once had a review after Panto saying I made the wooden tops look mobile. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that threw me completely. So I had to get a bit more animated, you know. Yeah. But no, you're right, you're right. Just little things like that, you know, just don't push the barriers too far. And then after we got involved in the series, Jim knew what he could throw at me and I could give him back and this and the other. So yeah, it worked and uh, we worked really well together. Good did you times. get on, did you become close friends? Do you still see Jim? No. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> no, 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 no. We did pantomime together, we've had some laughs. I, I mean, uh, you know, as I say, funny man. Uh, but uh, he gets a little bit serious off the uh, off stage, you know. But uh, he did give me a £10,000 car to your watch. Said, thanks for resurrecting my career after, after we did the second series. Wow. So uh, I'll, I've still got that. No, I'm <laughs> not taking that to any pawn shop. In the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, John. you work with people. You work with people. Yeah. You, you know, I just, I'll, listen, I work with Alex C. And, and I, you know, I wrote a book about Alex Eve, you know, but you wouldn't want to be going out with him every night, would you? <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, we, we, we want to ask you about Alex Higgins more in a moment, but uh, I mean, to, I hope this doesn't sound glib, but did, did you avoid politics with Jim Davidson? Because he's known as quite a right wing kind of um, oh, yeah, yeah, pundit, yeah, yeah. really. Well, with, yeah. As you say, yeah, you're, you're very yeah. left wing. You, you, you identify yourself as a as a socialist. So were you sticking to like snooker and, uh, and, and small talk? Uh, yeah, well, we didn't really talk about politics a lot. I mean, uh, he was a big Margaret Thatcher fan. In fact, he took me to a, a thing once at Brinsworth Hall. He introduced me to, to her because she said to him, oh, Dennis and I love Big Break. And that John Virgo, how funny is he? That's what she said to Jim. Anyway, we finished up watching a firework display for about 15 minutes and Margaret Thatcher's all in my hand. If my powers had deceived me, I'd have got a whack around the head. No, but she was a nice lady. Politics surprise, you know, she was, she was a nice lady. But yeah, we never talked about politics. You know, I mean, he might throw something at me and I might say something back, but we never got in depth about politics. You know, what's the point? What's the point? <laughs> I wonder, I mean, that story is a good example of this, but you were obviously famous from the snooker anyway, but that that must have catapulted you into a different sort of 
celebrity world with Big Break. Unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, they did warn me at the BBC, you know, like the, the people working on the show, they were saying, you're going to be so famous now, you know, I don't think a lot of people knew me as a super player, mm. you know. And a classic example of this, when my daughter was about, I think she'd be about eight years old at the time, and I took her to Thorpe Park, and we're, and we're going in through the turnstiles, and there was a coach pulled up with these school kids, and they've all come running over. Because <laughs> they watched Big Break on a Saturday night on the TV. So we had to leave. I mean, it was madness, you know. But, yeah, it was uh, it was strange, strange, you know, uh, to be that well-known. And that is the power, of course, of television, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. But uh, wouldn't knock it, wouldn't knock it. But, it, but <laughs> a few scary moments along the way, you know. Because not everybody likes you, you know. <laughs> you uh, like really? to think it. But not everybody likes you. <laughs> it sounds like there's a story there. Well, there'd be a lot, Phil. There'd be a <laughs> lot. But, you know, but all I will say, not everybody likes you. You know, I get, I get letters even now, you know, as I say about the commentary. Not everybody likes you, but that would be impossible for everybody to like you, you know. Mm. But you just carry on doing your thing and uh, hope it appeals to more people than don't, you know, yeah. if you know what I mean. It sounds like there were no regrets when Big Break ended. It wasn't like, oh, can we do it a bit longer? Did you feel like you'd had a bloody good innings doing it type thing? Well, I'd had a good innings, but I think it would have gone on longer. But Bruce decided he didn't want to do the Generation game anymore. Uh, And they used to record it in the next studio to us. And because Bruce couldn't do uh, one of the shows this particular week, Jim stood in and obviously made a great success of it. So then they got the Jim Davison Generation game. Well, they weren't ever going to show him twice on a Saturday night. <laughs> Unless you're Paddy McGuinness. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so that was it. It came to an end. But yeah, I, I mean, I'd have liked it to have gone on a couple of more years, obviously. But it didn't. And uh, But it's a nice... And people remember it fondly. That's the, uh, <clears throat> that's the main thing, you know, which is, which is good. Of course it is. Do you ever watch back old episodes? I, I watched one the other day, actually popped on TV on some repeat channel, and it, it's great yeah. nostalgia. Oh, well, I, I don't, to be honest with you, but uh, the players made it as well, you know. Yeah. The players were absolutely fantastic, you know. I mean, Steve Davis, uh, Jimmy, obviously, you know. And people even like Darren Morgan used to come on, and he was great on the show, gave it everything. Uh, Tony Drago was fantastic. One of the funniest, though, was when we first started and Cliff Thorburn's got to the final and uh, he's got so much time, you know, with the questions. This is for the uh, jackpot, which is, well, I think it was a holiday to Florida. So when I realised that he's only just potted the two reds, you know, because he's not the quickest, Cliff. (laughs) So I've thrown the yellow in the pocket Thrown the green. Now Jim's thought, oh, yeah, let's do that. And Jim's thrown all the other balls in the pocket. And the producer said, Jim, we can't do this. Because if you do that, we'll have to do it every week. Everybody will be winning the jackpot. All right, well, let him have another go. And if he doesn't do it, I'll pay for the holiday. And I'm going, Jim, no, this is Cliff Thorburn. (laughs) Anyway, he had to pay uh, £2,500 for the holiday to Florida. Because he didn't do it the second time either, you know. 
But that was funny. But that's Jim not knowing his players. You know, I wouldn't have backed <laughs> Cliff Thorburn to pot it. It was only the covers left in, in one minute. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> but funny, funny, yeah. I, yeah. Well, well, I watched some old episodes too, funny enough, and it's not the very first one, and it was still, you know, for a first episode, it was very, very strong. And you could see, you know, looking at different clips as the years went on, that how smooth you were getting with it. It was like clockwork at the end. But there were yeah. good players in it. it was, I watched a later one from 2001. It was Ken Doherty, Ronnie, and Stephen Hendry. I mean, that, you know, you had, you had, you had top, oh, yeah. top players in there. You know. And as I say, they always, they, they always gave a lot to the show, contributed to it, and made it better, you know. And, uh, yeah, uh, and, and I thought also the game came out of it well. It just showed you how popular Snooker was. Mm. And it was another way of uh, saying what a great uh, game we had, you know. And, and, and you could put it anywhere and it still get a, 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 an audience. You know, which it did. I mean, for nearly 14 million viewers was fantastic. Of course it was. It was a brilliant audience. Um, John, I want to ask you more about Alex Higgins. You mentioned him a few times. He was an extraordinary character, wasn't he? I mean, you, I've heard you and others as well of that era say he was so changeable. You never quite knew which Alex Higgins you'd get. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the thing was about him... Uh, I try, I've tried to explain this. I mean, if I tried to explain it to Ronnie once, you know, because Ronnie said, well, he wasn't that good. He only won two world titles. And he only made so many century breaks, you know. But when he walked from his seat to the table, it was like he was going on stage, you know, to perform. And he, and he honestly believed that everybody in the audience had come to see him play. They hadn't come to see the opponent. They'd come to see him play. And to have that belief, see, Jimmy never had that belief because Jimmy's a little bit of an introvert, Jimmy. You know, I love him dearly. He's one of my best friends. But, but he, he's, he, he was inspired, if you like, by Alex Higgins. But to go that step further, you need to be a character like Higgins. And, and Jimmy wasn't that way. Jimmy, as I say, a bit shy bit sort of withdrawn, whereas Higgins was just the complete opposite, you know, and, and, and he'd feed on, on, on the crowd, going, go on, Alex, and all that. He'd love that, you know, whereas I think Jimmy found it a little bit of a burden. Not a great burden, but a little bit of a burden. You know, you have to be somebody really special to believe, as I say, that everybody's come to see you play. He <laughs> was an amazing character, and, and what a player. What a player, what a touch in the balls. Just amazing. Yeah. It's interesting you're describing those two there. And I guess Ronnie feels like he fits somewhere in the middle of those two in terms of he draws from the crowd, but he sometimes feels like he'd rather not have the pressure of the crowd. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why, as I say with Higgins, he, he, he was a special type of person. Uh, I think Ronnie, you know, feels it like Jimmy does. You, you know, uh, as I say, if you have that attitude where you just don't care, about, you just believe that everybody's on your side, it, it would help. But not everybody's built like that. But as I've said earlier, you know, Ronnie's the best player I've ever seen, you know, and, and what he's produced in, at the highest level, under the highest pressure situations, you know, he, he, he copes with it all right, you know. And I think if he'd have maybe 
been a bit more level in his in his mind. I mean, he he'd, he'd have got up to maybe ten world titles. I'm 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 convinced of that. But uh, I think the other thing with Ronnie, like with Alex, you know, when when Alex was going downhill, Simon, you don't you you will not appreciate these people until they're gone. And Ronnie's not going to last forever. And I remember when the uh, they did the uh, sports personality of the year last year, and I was putting on Twitter, you know, you got to vote for Ronnie. You know, he's he's the best sportsman Britain has produced for. Well, when have they produced a better one, a more talented <laughs> genius? You know, but no, he doesn't get a mention. And then I'm getting people tweeting about, well, what about when he walked out on Stephen Hendry when he was only three one down in? And, and I said to them, forget all those things. We, we, we should, this guy isn't going to be around for forever. We, we, we should enjoy this, this time he's given us and mm. this quality that he's given us. And for some people, it isn't enough. But as we all know, not everybody's the same. But uh, no, we, we, we should enjoy these talents because, as I say, they're not going to be with us forever. Yeah. You sort of mentioned it there. And I've heard people say this before that, despite being the most successful player ever, some people say Ronnie has underachieved just because how good he is. Don't know if you yeah, go along yeah. with that. Yeah, you would. You, you, you'd have to say that. You'd have to say that. I mean, I do a lot of exhibitions with him. I'm doing three this week, actually. I'm flying back over on Wednesday. Oh. Uh, I mean, I say, I, I, while he's playing, I commentate, you know, and he's playing the challenger. And, and I'm just gobsmacked with what he does on the snooker mm. table. I mean, it's just frightening. It is frightening. And for those who were always wondering, because you always get people like, oh, there's the cat. Anyway. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> He's wandered in. It's all right. It's a white cat. <laughs> anyway, but you always get these people saying, what are people like and all that. Ronnie O'Sullivan is a lovely, lovely lad. He's a lovely lad. And make no mistake about that. You know, obviously, he's in a high-pressure situation and people can meet him at odd times. You know, like people will say, oh, I don't like him and all that. But Ronnie O'Sullivan is a lovely lad, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So uh, enjoy him while we've got him, you know. Well, we often say that about him and the other members of the class of 92. I mean, you said there that Ronnie, Ronnie's the greatest for you. Who would be the one that he just beat to that position? Would it be Stephen Hendry? Or, and, and, and how would Davis and John Higgins uh, rate as well in, in those greatest for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I think Henry, uh, I think whatever we say about any sport, it's all going to come down. When they're not playing anymore, the the facts and figures in it of what they won and what they achieved and this, that and the other. That will be the memory. Uh, so, obviously, Stephen Henry, I mean, and he, and he changed the game. He raised the bar. There's no doubt about that, the way he started playing. But you, you, you can't underestimate. Uh, I think John Higgins would, would have to come in at number three, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, he's won these world titles, but then to get to the final, as he did, was it three world mm. finals he got to? I mean, it was just incredible to keep, to keep going as he does. And then obviously, you know, Mark Williams, you, you know, he's no back number. He's no back number. Uh, I'm, I'm amazed how he's transformed his, uh, his career in the last few seasons, you know. It's been tremendous. Davis would be up there, obviously. And the way I'm looking at it now, 
uh, Mark Selby uh, will, will be regarded as one of the all-time greats, no doubt. And if anyone's going to beat Stephen Hendry, it could still be Mark, da uh, sorry, Mark Williams. Mark Davis. Mark Williams. You know, it could be Mark Williams that, uh, that beats that record. But those would be my top four or five. But as I say, it's all, it's all down to what they've achieved. Now, if Jimmy had won two of those world titles, three of them, which he should have done or could have done, you'd rate him as one. Well. Don't ever forget it's Jimmy White, who carried the baton on from Higgins and got people watching the game, you know. So it depends what you want to think, uh, what want to look at, you know, the stats or what the people gave to the game, you know. But, yeah, Ronnie, Stephen Hendry, and then probably John Higgins for me. What do you make of Stephen's comeback at the minute? I don't understand. It's a mystery to me. I've got to be honest with you. A mystery. I do not understand why he wanted to come back. And, 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 and the reason I say that, not that I spoke to Stephen about it, and Stephen's a good friend of mine and we, we, we chat, but he was playing in some of the seniors' events, <clears throat> excuse me, and wasn't getting results. So why would he think if he went on the main tour, he started to get results? It was, I didn't understand it, you know. Uh, I mean, it's like sometimes I, I think, well, why is Jimmy playing? I mean, Ronnie says the same. Why is Jimmy playing on? You know, I mean, why not he wants to remember as the great Jimmy White? But Jimmy says, look, I, I love playing the game. I want to play, you know, so there's no law against that. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the same reason for Stephen. I don't know, but uh, it was a strange decision and I still don't understand. I'm not asking him why, because it's not my business. But he's not doing it for the money, because the only way you get money out of it is to win a few matches. Mm. And that ain't happening. You know, so... But everybody has their own life. Maybe it gets him out of bed in the morning, gets down to the snooker club and practice. You know, when you've been doing it all your life, it's uh, you can get a bit of withdrawal symptom from it, you know. So, uh, yeah, I know he's all happy in the summer because he can play golf. But in the winter, when uh, he's not playing golf, he's probably thinking, well, I might as well go on the circuit table. But as I say, his decision, and uh, he doesn't owe the game anything. Uh, and I don't think the game owes him anything. So, anyway, his decision. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how much, how much John, he might be inspired a bit by the class of 92. I mean... It must amaze you. You've already suggested it there with Higgins. These guys are in their mid-40s now. And to be mm. honest with you, it looks like they could still go on winning for another five, ten years, doesn't it? No, it is <laughs> remarkable, isn't it? It's remarkable. Joe Johnson told me a lovely story. You know, if you look at a watch and you have the very small writing in the middle of the watch, <clears throat> Ronnie, John Higgins and Mark Williams can still read that small writing without glasses. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? So there you go, you see. Mind you, I think eyesight is important in the game of snooker, isn't it? But they, they can still read that small writing. So, uh, yeah, it's been remar absolutely remarkable. Remarkable. And uh, not only the way they play, but the results they've had over the years. And uh, the tremendous temperament, you know. Maybe it was being brought up together that they knew that they couldn't let the standards slip in it. Because if they did, the other one would have run away from them, you know. Now, great. And, and they've been great servants of the game. Yeah. No, no, no. You, 
that class of 92, like the Man United one. Be remembered forever. <laughs> Be remembered forever. How we didn't get two penalties, by the way, on Sunday. I well, do not know. Well, yeah. Two? More, more than two. Better than three. <laughs> well, maybe the Ronaldo maybe. one, certainly, yeah. Oh, oh well, yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to go off at a tangent, actually, and, 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 and talk a bit, because you're an all-round sports lover, aren't you? And you you, you, you've actually loved Manchester United for decades. I mean, you remember Sir Matt's team, the Busby Babes, don't you? I mean, that, that's... Uh, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was a claim to fame. A claim to fame as a kid, you know. Yeah. Just before the Munich air disaster, you know, you'd say, what's the United team, you know? And you'd go, Wood, Folksburn, Coleman, Jones, Edwards, Berry, Wheel and Taylor, Violet, Beck. That was our team, you know. <laughs> but, uh, no, if you come from somewhere like Salford, you know, because if I say to people I'm from Salford, they go, oh, where's that? Uh, you know, near Manchester. Oh, Manchester. And it isn't Manchester, but Manchester United have been my, well, my calling card all around the world because no one knows where Salford is. But if you say, well, when I used to walk out of the backyard where I lived in Salford, you look up, you see the floodlights at Old Trafford, then uh, gives you a bit of credibility around the world. And I was there when we won the treble in... Uh, 99, yeah, you know, just, yeah, it's my team, you know, it's my team. Well, well I was at the new camp that night, great, great night of a sporting lifetime. One of my like, nice memories of the Crucible, actually, and we, there's been some United players there over the years, Roy Keane, yeah. Michael yeah. Carrick was there in recent times, and I've got a lovely memory of watching you and Ken Doherty rush to the back door and the stage door, Michael, Michael, just he was getting in <laughs> his car, and he wanted to ask you yeah. about the team, you know, who's going to be in the team Saturday, you know, what's going on, you know. How's yeah. Alex? And you were firing in questions because Ken's a big United supporter as well. So he is a big, yeah, yeah. I mean, he couldn't see the floodlits when he walked out of his backyard, by the way, uh, <laughs> in Dublin. But, but there you go. We we take ever all kinds. No, I, I, funny enough, I said to Michael Carrick, I go, I've never met him before. And you're right. Someone said, Oh, Michael Carrick's around the stage door. So I, I, I went around. I went. Because he was just about to retire, you know. I said, we're going to miss you. And he said, and we're going to miss you, he said, when you don't do this commentary anymore. That's what he said to me. <laughs> so, yeah, mutual respect. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. He was, uh, he was a good player for United, yeah. And uh, getting Ronaldo back is just the icing on the cake, you know. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's fantastic. It makes you want to watch it, you know. I used to watch Villa because Jack Grealish was playing, you know. Yeah. No, because you like to watch talents, don't you? Yeah. And yet he couldn't get in the England team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Least said about that, the better. <laughs> what an opportunity to win a tournament, eh? Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Anyway, they, don't get me started about him. <laughs> they went so close. It, it was a thrilling run, wasn't it, all the way to the final. But you talk about great talents. Back to the, the game we all love uh, and... Uh, how, I wonder what you think about Judd Trump and where he might stand in the pantheon going into the future. I mean, he, he probably needs to put a few of the bigger titles in the bag, but you must be so impressed and, and wowed when you see Judd at his best. Oh, he's got tremendous queuing ability. You know, I mean, some of the shots he pulls off are sensational, you know, on the, the fizz he can put into the cue ball. But as I've said before, you know, Jimmy White could do all that. But, but Jimmy didn't feel as though it was in his remit to start playing all these shots. I mean, he played a few of them. Uh, but 
as I said earlier, you'll be remembered on what you achieve. You know, like you said to me at the start of this, you know, people won't remember you were a player because you win the UK. Uh, but unless you win a few world championships and this, that and the other, that that's you're not going to get any recognition. So he's won one and he's won a UK and he's won a Masters. But he's got to start building on that. And uh, he's been disappointing uh, for me last season. I, I, I remember when he missed the pink you know, only a snooker lover oh. and a rat. <laughs> when it against uh, Selby in the... I'm uh, sorry, Robertson. At one in the morning. The <laughs> At one in the morning it was. Oh, in the UK. Wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, but it was, it was in the early hours. It was amazing late yeah. finish. Yeah. But he missed that pink, you know. You miss shots like that, you, you, you know, they can uh, wear, wear you out in the end. But uh, great talent. He's just got to prove to me he's a consistent winner. Uh, he looked as though he was going to be. And, I, and I'm not talking about these best of nines. I'm talking about the big events. You know, when it's long frames, you've got to have moments where you're not at your best or a bad run of the ball, or you've got to fight through that. And uh, at the moment, he's uh, not stepping up to the plate often enough, but a great talent, no doubt. Because there's been this sort of slight debate, although it's not really a debate because Mark Selby is world number one now. But yeah. Judd sort of felt that he's been the best player because he's won all these other tournaments. Feels like he he is the best player in the world. Um, but it sounds like you would put much more store in being the world champion. Well, it's not that I put much store into it, but but I'm but I'm telling you how the public and everybody else thinks. You know, mm. uh, I mean, it's like Jimmy. I mean, when we talk about the best players that's ever lived, we never mention Jimmy, do we? We don't put him in there because he mm. never won world titles. You know. Uh, so uh, Judd's got a little bit to prove, but he's got time, mm-hmm. but he is over 30 now, so he needs to start doing it pretty quick, you know. Uh, is he the best player in the world at, at, at the moment? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I think, uh, I think there's three vibe for it for me. Judd will be one of them, Mark Selby and Neil Robertson. They'd be my three against uh, against any field now at the moment. Mm-hmm. Robertson's a great player, great progress, best overseas player I've ever seen. But uh, yeah, there's competition for that world number one. You, you don't have a divine right to be world number one because you can mm-hmm. pop the ball and screw around the table ten times. You know what I mean? You've got to win, <laughs> and he's got to start winning the big events a bit more. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Judd is, I think he's thirty-one now, maybe thirty-two. Um, yeah. But he's still sort of one of the younger players in the game, and just going back to sort of what Ronnie said last year um, about there's a lack of young talent. Is that do you sort of see that in the game? And I mean, it's, it's yeah, nowhere near. You don't, other than Yan Bing yeah. Tao, we don't see sort of people around the age of twenty challenging. No, unfortunately, I do see that. I keep hearing about these young players coming through. You know, you go to some exhibition, and say, "Oh, there's a lad there. He's only fourteen. He's not, you know, making hundred breaks." But until they appear and prove they can do it at the highest level, you know, and when I mentioned the class of 92, you know, having the temperament and all, all the things that you need to win tournaments, uh, we can all pop balls in the snooker club. It's doing it when it's out there and matters. Uh, yeah, and I haven't seen any young players coming through, you know, so uh, that is a worry. Uh, I think there's a few young Chinese players that are coming through. Uh, but I'd like to see, uh, particularly from Europe, I'd like to to see a few coming through, but 
this is the one thing that people forget. It's a very hard game. <laughs> it's a very hard game and it's a very cruel game because you could be a great player and you make one mistake and then you just sit down because as we always say at snooker, when the other man is at the table, all you can do is watch. You have no right to reply like you would at golf, darts, tennis, mm. snooker, no. You're in that seat and you have to wait for your turn and it's a very, very hard game, very hard game. Oh, that was... You had a good temperament. <laughs> that, that was almost a little bit of your commentary vibe there. I love that. All you can, oh, right. <laughs> all you can do is sit and watch. I thought, that's a wonderful Virgoism there. But, yeah. Don, just to introduce a bit of a sad note to it. I mean, you've already mentioned him. I, I, I know you missed, must miss Willie Thorne immensely. He was a, a great pal of yours, and we all miss him, you know, not being able to hear, hear that yeah. voice. I mean, he was, a, he was a special character in the game, wasn't he? He was. He was. But as I said earlier, you know, we were brought up with characters. We were brought up with the Reardons and Higgins and Spencer and people like that. So we just carried it on, you know. Uh, and Willie was a class act, you know. Unfortunately, uh, he had a problem, you know, which is sad, you know. And uh, when, when it's all over, you think, well, maybe I could have helped him a bit more. But the help you'd have given him was just give him money and which you'd have just blown on the horses. It's, uh, you know, it's as harsh in reality as that. So it was very sad, you know. Uh, yeah, because he, as I say, was a class act and always a pleasure to be with, you know. And that is the one thing. And I think we all thought that, all the guys we were working in the commentary together, you know, was we ain't going to see him again, you know. And uh, that is the saddest thing about death because it's all final but the fact we won't be able to out for a meal and have a, a good laugh you know because he was a funny guy yeah that i think that camaraderie between all you guys who who work in the in commentary or have just been around the game for so long it's really nice to see how how close nearly everyone is yeah well i think the bottom line is and this is what we keep mentioning all the way through this we love the game mm. You know, we're people, we didn't have any great skill sets. I'm not saying we were thick or anything like that. We <laughs> didn't have university degrees. And this game has given us everything. So we all love the game. And, and people who love the game, you, you, you have an affinity with them. Mm. Don't you? They're part of your family. And, uh, yeah, we, we love the game and we love the people who love the game. It's mm -hmm. as simple as. You, you mentioned sort of the characters a few times and... That, I'm sure you've heard people say this a lot, that, that no characters in the game these days. Um, do you see that or do you see how it's just sort of changed? No, I don't see that at all. I mean, I don't know what uh, is a character, you know. Uh, I mean, I think it's somebody who uh, welcomes the audience into their world when they play, mm. you know. And Judd Trump does that. Uh, Mark Selby does that. Uh, so, no, I don't see... Uh, there's no characters in the game. Uh, I think it's uh, what people want to see, you know. And listen, if you want to go and watch a genius at work, you watch Ronnie O'Sullivan. Yeah. What more do you want? What more would you want? Absolutely. Well, I mean, when, when you look back at your, your life, John, I mean, you, you had a very happy childhood, but a, quite a humble one, it, it, you mm -hmm. know. And you, you, you must look back with, with a great sense of pride, don't you? And also uh, those um, around you and close to you and that love you must have that pride as well. Because 
as I say, said at the start, you know, you've become such a famous, you know, much loved character, not just in snooker, but beyond. It's been, it's mm. been quite a life, hasn't it, so far? Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. And as I say, the game took me all around the world and, and I've met some great characters, you know, like, you know, Dennis and uh, Steve, you know, and all, all, all the people who work for the BBC and Jimmy, obviously, who I've known since he was a kid. And yeah, just great people in the game, you know. And uh, yeah, from the humbling, uh, humble beginnings, uh, to be able to travel the world and meet these people and yeah, it's just been fantastic. And uh, I count my uh, lucky stars, you know. Yeah, I do. I'm, make no mistake. I was I was very fortunate, and I, I and I appreciate that. I think that always comes across as well because you sort of said when you talk about Big Break being the the dour northerner, but you don't. That sort of is your personality, but it also shines through that you're enjoying yourself a lot of the time. Well, yeah, you know, you can't help uh, how you look. You know, I remember, <laughs> I remember the producer one day coming up. To me, he said, are you all right, John? And I went, yeah. He said, you don't look too happy. I said, I always look this way. <laughs> keep it in, keep it in, he said. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good times, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, we presume you're back for the BBC for the big ones this season. Would you be back for the UK towards the end of the year? I don't know yet. No. I don't know. Uh, there's a question mark. Uh, I think this will, uh, listen, you never know what's around the corner in life, but uh, it looks like this will be my last season. I oh, really, is that Not it? my choice, not my choice, uh, theirs. And uh, along with Dennis, apparently. Oh, right. So, uh, scoop or whatever it is, I don't know, but but that's, uh, that's what we're getting, that this will be our last season. Uh, is that a sort of an intimation of that they told you that? I think that's definite. Okay. Uh, the World Championship will be our last one. Yeah. So and uh, that, that sound. I assume you know. Is that are you? You you would want to carry on beyond that? Is that you said it's not your decision? No, it's not my decision. I mean, I love the game, you know, and everything mm. else. But I understand that nothing lasts forever. I understand that, you know. So. Uh, yeah, that's a decision that they're they're making, and uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, I, I haven't really felt it at the moment, but uh, I probably will do uh, come the World Championship, you know, but because uh, there'll be a lot of memories there mm. that uh, all memories from when we first went there in '77. So it'll be, it'll, it'll it'll be hard, but uh, as I say. Nothing lasts forever, and uh, I'll give it my best shot, and uh, and that'll be it. Yeah. Well, it'll be very sad to see you both go, John. You, you'll be the end of an era, undoubtedly. Because we, you know, we, you know, us two have been listening to you since you, since we were boys, and um, you know, and everyone's got a, a memory, both in childhood and growing up, of you. So, yes, that's um, that's going to be quite something, and. Uh, I'm sorry to hear it in many ways. I know snooker fans everywhere will be as well. Yeah, yeah well, as I say, you know, that's uh, nothing will last forever, and, and I appreciate that. So uh, I think they're probably looking for people who uh, are more uh, in touch with the modern day player. Although 
I think all players are the same, aren't they? You know, I mean, they play shots. I mean, there's not many shots that people have played that I haven't seen, you know. But as I say, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not criticising the decision because, uh, as I say, I know nothing lasts forever. And uh, the BBC have been fantastic to me in my commentary career. Uh, big break, you know. So, uh, yeah, if, the, if that's a decision, that's a decision. So, uh, you know, we'll just have to accept it and uh, enjoy it on the telly. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're still being in and around the game, of course, though. You mentioned you've got some exhibitions coming up this week. Yeah, with Ronnie, yeah. We're in Cone uh, Thursday, Whitehaven Thursday, and then, uh, no, Friday, and then Leicester. So uh, doing a bit of driving around in a car, you know, which won't suit Ronnie being stuck in a car for four hours <laughs> and white. <laughs> oh. We'll have to find something to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, you talked about commentating on the, the exhibitions match, which you do. And of course, we know you as, as a much loved commentator for everyone a day, really. When you're watching like the semi-finals last year, I'm interested, do do you sort of commentate in your own head and do you think, oh, what, what I would have said there type thing if I was doing it? Or not really, you're just watching it as a fan at home type thing? Uh, well, I, I, I think what we've all tried to do over the years, I mean, if you've ever been in the uh, the players' lounge at the Crucible, you know, there are the directors around, you know what they call. So you get three or four snooker players sat around watching the TV, right? And they're all giving their opinion of what he should go for and what he shouldn't go for and this and that. And basically, if you could sort of commentate on that with that sort of laid back uh, sort of style and not get too involved and don't try to feel as though you're favouring one player from the other, I think that's fine. Just call the shots as it is. And uh, sometimes people surprise you with a, a certain shot selection and then it's up to you to pick up and try and understand why he did that. You know, that's that's the job, I think. Yeah, I've, I've spoken to some players before about whether they would do commentary and they're really scared about calling a shot and then a player playing a different shot. But, I mean, yeah, that just yeah. isn't it? It's nothing to worry about too much, is it? No, 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 no. Well, uh, un- unless you were willy, when Willie used to call the shot and they didn't play it and it went wrong, he'd go, I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> he used to take it personal. Yeah. But no, listen, you should never be frightened. I mean, if, if you think there's a certain shot that should be played and you call it because you're uh, entitled to an opinion and they don't play it, there won't be many of them. It'll be an odd one. It'll be one in 50 or something like that. So you shouldn't be frightened. Shouldn't be afraid of calling a shot. No. <laughs> well, well, Phil, there's no doubt we could do double or treble the time, but uh, should we let John get on with his with his Monday now? <laughs> yeah, it's been superb, right. as you say. We could talk forever, but we should probably keep it to a reasonable length. Exactly. All right, guys. Well, listen, it's lovely to talk to you. And as we, uh, as I said earlier, you love the game, you know. Then uh, respect from me, because uh, we're all in the same uh, we're all in the same umbrella. Lovely. Well, I use that phrase talking about the game we all love. And if I think of some of the truly great lovers of this of this sport that I've known in my lifetime, you'd be right near the very top, John Virgo. You are you are in so many ways, Mister Snooker, and uh, we're, we're so grateful for you joining us. It's been it's been lovely. Thanks, Nick. Thanks very Good much, John. Time. And hopefully, we'll 
We'll see you at the historic last World Championship next year. There'll be a sad occasion. Yeah, I, look forward to it. I look forward to it. Well, Great. Cheers, John. I'll be there. God bless. <laughs> Good night, JB. <laughs> Good night, JB. Good night, JB. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Bye. Well, that was absolutely delightful, wasn't it, Phil? That one of the great characters from the world of snooker there, John Burgo. And, well, goodness me, that was um, qu quite quite a, a chat. And, well, um, maybe I should ask your reaction. I know we've got our, our Mondays to get on with as well, but just briefly, I mean, if you know, that's a very sad news about John and Dennis Taylor, isn't it? I mean, he, they are clearly um, huge characters throughout all our lives, frankly, no matter what age you are, and that's going to be the end of an era. Of course, yeah, that was took me took me back a bit. Um, sad news, yeah. Um, I mean, as John says, everything comes to an end, and it, um, you know, they're they're bound to stop at some point. But you know, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be a sort of historic time. And hopefully, if that is their final one, as he says, um, they get a proper proper send off that they deserve. I mean, it's probably not not up to me to sort or anyone to judge how people react to things. But I thought that was said a lot about John that he was sort of very much like, well, about a great life BBC. because you you do get some people no matter what age they are, and they they could have been with a, you know, a company for decades, and yet they're still angry and annoyed. But that doesn't seem like that was John's reaction. It's like you know philosophical, but um, well, he I think he used the phrase, "You never know what you got till it's gone." But that will be the case with John Burgo, won't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's always sad when. Um, sort of the voices you've heard for so long ago. I remember sort of before he died when Willie Thorne stopped commentating, that was sad. And I always miss Terry Griffiths being on there as well because he was always superb. Um, so yeah, he'll be he'll be missed. Um, and hopefully, you know, maybe hopefully he'll just pop up occasionally. This will be about obviously this will be about on the scene. Um, we'll try and get him on here a bit more if he's not on the TV so much, so people still get to hear him. Yeah, indeed. And uh, well, before we go, we have had some English Open matches, of course. I know you've been watching a bit, a bit of the action, probably more than I have over recent days. I've been had a very football head on and building up to the Ryder Cup. But, you know, it, it's just nice to see some action, isn't it? I noticed there was some, you know, quite big names w winning through yesterday. Graham Dot, Ricky Walden uh, among them, the win for James Cahill and uh, Ben Wollaston as well the day before. And uh, also good wins for uh, Alexander Ersenbacher, Tom Ford, they're looking through the list here. So, uh, what games would you particularly pick out from those? Um, yeah, I've seen little bits and pieces. Um, I watched another Michael Holt. Uh, if you if you sort of follow his games, a bit of an emotional roller coaster. I think he's that's three straight deciders he's lost, um, and two back to back to Chris Wakelin. Um, so he's had a bit of a tough start to the season. Um, I watched Michael Giorgio get a very good win, um, beat Elliot Slesser four one. Um, you, meant Ricky, you mentioned Ricky Walden win. That, um, that was impressive four 0 Sort of fancy him to do quite well this season, which I mentioned before. Um, Joe Perry's having a real struggle to start the season. He lost 4-2 to Sahel Vahidi. Um, what else did I see? I think it was main, mainly the bits that I've remembered. And there's some good games on today coming up. Uh, Louis Heathcote playing Anthony Hamilton, I noticed. I'll watch that. Oh, I watched Cow Yu Peng play Mitchell Mann as well. I think I put on Twitter that um, Cow's an absolute nightmare for anyone in the first round uh, this year. Um, he beat Mitchell Mann 4-0. And, uh, yeah, he's going to go deep in some tournaments. I think Kaoli Peng uh, looks very good. Definitely. And, and uh, well, 
about to say we sort of chucked that at each other a bit because we weren't planning to necessarily talk about the English Open. <laughs> we, we didn't know whether we'd say goodbye with John or we'd carry on. But but we're, we're looking forward to some more matches in the days to come. And, and, and the Northern Ireland Open, it, I think, is now three weeks away. So we'll, we'll very much look forward to that. And, of course, we, we'll preview and review all the big tournaments to come. Thanks to Gary Moss for last week, smashing guests with, with your views. We've, we've had quite a lot more infill. So I think in a few weeks' time, we might do another Your Views. A lot of people... Um, having their say on the crucible de- debate, not everyone, not everyone saying that they think the crucible should be the long-term home. The vast majority, though, very much saying that. So we'll perhaps turn to some more, some more of those those views too. But that's kind of definitely sitting, you know, it, the kind of uh, driver of, of, of the attention of snooker fans at the moment. That debate, isn't it? Yeah. I suppose if that had come up in a different time of the season, maybe it wouldn't have got so much traction because there's not much going on, on the table, and it's a uh... It's a good thing to talk about. But yeah, I think, as you say, there's, um, it's never going to be 100% one way or the other, but I think we could have uh, we could have predicted that most Suka fans would have wanted to keep it at the Crucible. As John was saying, I think he was a very big, very big on it staying there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you've got to get back to work, sir. We kept you for longer than you should. I've, I, I've, I've got some golf to turn my attention to as well in this in this Ryder Cup week. And uh, well, it's been it's been lovely to have you for company. And I think, you know, it was a special episode, that wasn't it? We're, we're so glad John came on and he was just delightful. Yeah, I loved that. That was superb. He was brilliant. Um, I knew he'd have all sorts of stories to tell and he won't have even scratched the surface, really. As we said before, he could talk all day, I imagine. But yeah, it was great. So thanks again to John for coming on. And thanks to you and see you next week. Keep your thoughts coming to us, talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or tweet us at talkingsnooker. That's email, talkingsnooker at yahoo.com or indeed tweet us at Talking Snooker. But for now, from John Virgo, Phil Haig, and Nick Metcalf, cheerio. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.